Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is so true for every one of us in Christ today that our relationship with you was the defining moment, not just our lives, but our eternal lives. Father, there are so many lost, captives, slaves to their sin, who go about oblivious to the wages of sin. Even this day as we fellowship here, the wages of sin is death. The justice and wrath that their sin deserves is hell. Eternal separation, absorbing the wrath of God for all of our Lord, punished or all of our sin against your holiness. The only exception to those, Lord Jesus, who are in this frame of mind and state of being are those who have been ransomed by the power of your Holy Spirit to waken us from the stupor and death of sin, to give us new life in Jesus Christ, to regenerate our hearts, to give our spirit breath so that it might, Lord, cry out in newness of life, so that the cry of faith might escape our lips, saying, I repent of my sin, I place my trust in Christ, Jesus is my life. We are so thankful for our redemption this morning. We pray that as your word lands on our ears, that it would be written on our hearts. We pray that it would stir us to faithful obedience, to live in light of its proclaimed truth. I pray if there are any who fellowship with us today, or who we will fellowship with this week, that have not heard the call in the tomb of sin, Lazarus, come forth, that you might use your word on our lips, through our lives, to call to the lost and dying, Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for these moments we have together. It is only the Spirit's work that makes them valuable and profitable to our heart. And so we confess our dependence on you in the giving and the hearing of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn with me. In the Word of God to Psalm chapter 47, Psalm chapter 47, if you would in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. While you're turning there let me explain to you my sort of heady title and I sometimes want to give to my messages. This morning the title of our sermon is Theocratic Patriotism, Theocratic Patriotism. A theocracy, you might be more familiar with that term. Theocratic is just the adjective form of that word. The noun refers to a government, but a specific kind. A government that has God, Almighty God, as its head, as its leader, as its president, if you will. We're told of a theocracy in the proper sense, in all senses of the word, in the Old Covenant, We read of it in the constitution of the nation of Israel after their deliverance from slavery to Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. It is interesting to note in the course of redemptive history that first God delivers His people. First He sets them free. A picture of our own being set free from sin and death. But the deliverance from Egypt is not by the law. The deliverance is ultimately and utterly by God's grace. Yet after God brought His people by His grace from slavery into freedom, He gave them His rule of righteousness, whereby they might govern their life, their nation, and even their heart and their family relationships and everything in a way that might be pleasing to Him. And therein we have grace and law in Scripture. The law of God allows us to see with eyes wide open because of the resurrecting power of grace, how we then shall live, how we can glorify and worship the Lord rightly. And today we'll explore how themes like this even are the fodder and the substance of worship. And rightly so, I think we will find in Psalm 47. Stand with me if you would, with your Bibles open to Psalm 47. And let's read together These words recorded for us under the title, To the Choir Master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great King over all the earth. 
He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom He loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord at the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the infallible Word of God. You may be seated. Our message title today, Theocratic Patriotism, as benign and unprovocative as it is, just kidding, a little tongue-in-cheek there. The, the uh, theme there, or those words I've chosen on purpose to expose perhaps what might be latent in even our own hearts, a kind of humanistic, democratically induced level of discomfort with the notion of God's ultimate sovereignty, His government, and indeed His theocracy, the government of God, the rule and reign of Christ over everything. I was listening to some talk radio this last week and I heard a sort of refreshing voice, a little clearer than normal, cutting through the din of the political confusion and fog that often dominates the airwaves and media outlets in our culture today. We are so mistaken, we are so muddled on where is and ought to be authority vested and how to govern ourselves, how to think about rule and law and our nation and so on. Well, one voice cut through that fog recently, and this talk show host, uh, he gave this phrase on a secular, secularly syndicated show, he himself a Christian, he said, and this is insightful, he said, every government is a theocracy. It's just a question of who your theo is. Theo, of course, means God. Again, every government is a theocracy. It's just a question of who your theo is. And by this, of course, he means the highest authority recognized in a society. What a great question to ask. As a society in American culture today, what is commonly considered the highest authority in our land? Is it the Supreme Court? Is it the law as it's currently written before it's changed tomorrow when Congress reconvenes? to throw more arbitrary ink on arbitrary paper and rule and govern our lives, death by a million paper cuts, as it's sometimes said, as our liberties are stolen, one incremental law at a time, because vested highest authority is placed in a legislature somewhere? Do we consider the highest authority our Constitution as it was written? Or do we see that as subservient to a higher authority still? Do we see the highest authority of our life and our society as the, quote, right side of history? Have you heard that one lately? Oh, you're so on the wrong side of history. Get on the right side of history. What ethical norm is that? What does that mean? I submit to you, it's meaningless. What it is, is it's an appeal to an authority to give kind of carte blanche, to say, what I believe is right. And I believe it's right because it's the right side of history. Well, is there a higher authority than the shifting whims and culture of our day where one day it's wrong to think of homosexuality as a marriage and the next day it's right because our state or our government passed a certain law? Or is there a higher authority than the state of Minnesota, than the federal government? And all of, the, all of these questions are pertinent. Well, of course the answer is yes. The highest authority for all governments, for all people, for all nations, for all time, for all civilizations, for all society, the highest authority is Jesus Christ. It is the triune God of Scripture. And we will find in Psalm 47 reasons why that is the case. Reasons that are immutable, they will never change. Can you pass a law that God is no longer the creator of this universe? You could, but how foolish would you prove yourself to be? Could you pass a law denying that that truth be taught in the public 
sanctioned curriculum in your schools. You could, but how foolish would you be proven to be? Why? Because in spite of your denial and your obstinance, there yet remains a highest authority over you, over your law, over your notions, uh, whatever they may be on any fickle morning of what is right and good and proper, there yet remains a higher authority. And it is the God of Scripture over all that we do. Let us ask ourselves that question today. Let us stand on the highest authority for ourselves. Let us hold our lives, our decisions, our local relationships, however broad they may reach, certainly our families, perhaps beyond to our communities, and even as we step into the voting booth. Let us hold these decisions and relationships accountable to the highest authority. Let us look to Psalm 47 and the rest of Scripture to know exactly what that means for our lives in dutifully serving in allegiance and patriotism to the Lord the Most High. Psalm 47 emphatically reminds us that there is only one true highest authority and therefore we His people owe our highest allegiance or our patriotism to the only legitimate King of Kings first and foremost. And all other relationships, allegiances, and loyalties ought to be judged underneath that as secondary. In this inner advent time in history, that is, we live between a few milestones in redemptive history. Christ has come, we celebrate that this time of year in His finished work on Calvary. And now, the fullness of the elect are coming in. His word and gospel are being preached to all nooks and crannies and furthest corners and coastlands of this world. But there's coming another day in the future, the final day of judgment, where that inner advent time will close and the bookend of His return and the judgment for all time will be a reality for everyone living. Well, let us live in light of that. Let us live in the context of that reality, even now as we wait for the coming of our Lord. In this inner Advent time of sovereign history, we do know if we read our scriptures and hold ourselves accountable to it, that it's just a matter of time before Christ our Lord asserts His rightful authority in such a way as to allow no contest anymore. That is, no one else will be able to usurp, even for a brief moment in time, authority over Christ by their confession, by their lawless deeds and actions. Now, while this fearfully and awesome historical reality, uh, this psalm, even though while we grant this fearfully and awesome historical reality, tells us that there is coming a day of reckoning when all will be judged before that great throne in light of our, how we measure up, either by Christ's imputed righteousness or by our own sin to God's holy standard. In light of that truth, and in light of the judgment language of 47, there nevertheless is an additional theme. There is a theme in this psalm that is kind of two-part. It's an incredible truth that the Almighty God subdues His enemies, and, they, and He will ultimately be proven Lord and Judge. But it's perhaps an even more incredible truth that he is actually winning over his enemies and creating for himself in this wicked, rebellious world a people for himself. Another way we could say this is Almighty God subdues his enemies in two ways. And we see this in Psalm 47. Number one, he crushes them under his feet in judgment. And number two, he annexes them as his people. That is, he welcomes them into his family through the saving blood of His Son. He makes them His people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to show forth the praises of our God forever and ever. That's the two ways that Christ defeats His enemies. Notice in verses 1 through 4, before the Selah, it says in verse 3, for instance, that He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet speaking of the historical context of Israel, celebrating the exploits of the military campaign of Israel to dispatch her enemies and to establish her homestead, her nation state there in Israel. And this psalm exalts and praises the Lord for every sworn enemy of God's purposes that was slain by the blade of those who were commissioned to bring forth the arm of judgment against the rebellious inhabitants of this land. But... The rest of the psalm, verses 5 through 9, are surprising. Because here it says, The Lord reigns, in verse 8, 
over the nations. He sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples, peoples, gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The psalm commemorates God preserving Israel in their land. The national interests of this state. But it also celebrates something else. It celebrates an allegiance with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord that goes beyond just is parochial Israel. And it says that princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And this, brothers and sisters, as Gentiles, is our great hope. Praise the Lord that He is annexing for Himself us. He is welcoming for Himself a people from all nations to the praise of His glorious grace. And we gather even this morning as the people of the God of Abraham on account of that second category. He subdued, if you are a believer in this room, He subdued you. You were His enemy, but He did it through the grace of Christ. And you are now an ally serving His kingdom purposes on account of that second category. Praise the Lord. Notice in verses 5 and 6, five times the people of God are exhorted to praise His holy name on account of these themes that we're exploring this morning. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Excuse me, verses 5 and 6. Listen, five times, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. The Hebrew word there is zamar. It's this call, this exhortation, this charge to lift up praises, to break out in spontaneous and overflowing joy and song, the kind of celebration that would induce you to clap your hands, to shout with your voice, to blow the trumpet, and to praise the Lord in the corporate assembly. Five times the king of the earth it calls his people to praise him on account of his great name, on account of His theocratic rule, on account of His governing and ruling and reigning over the nations, over Israel, and over all the earth. A heading this morning, the King of the earth is praiseworthy in His dominion, destructions, divinity, distinctions, and defense. Five brief categories. Not a lot for subpoints this morning, just those five main points. The king of the earth is praiseworthy in his dominion, his destruction, his, definit- his divinity, his distinctions, and his defense. As we look at this psalm, we notice, first of all, that the dominion of the Lord, that is, his rule and ownership, is coextensive with this earth and even beyond. I will recall your attention, turn back a few pages, a few chapters to Psalm 24 to another psalm that extols this. While you're turning there, let me draw your attention to the first three verses of Psalm 47 again. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared. And what is He in verse 2? He is a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom He loves. In Psalm 24, we hear echoes of this same theme, that is the dominion of the king of the earth. This, another psalm of David, reads, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. We hear in this psalm emphatically delivered to us this truth that will never wither, fail, or fade by creative right because the heavens and the earth are the work of Almighty God's fingertips. He Himself owns every square inch of real estate on this entire globe. You can go out as an independent, self-proclaimed, sovereign people with a flag and a standard you think represents all your conquering might and your own self-contained glory. And you can go to the corners of the earth and plant that anywhere. And everywhere you plant it, you you are planting your flag 
on land that is already claimed by the Lord of the universe. Anywhere you go, I don't care if it's, we watched a movie this week, my wife and I, where they colonize space. And we even have, you know, a weird contraption that rotates around this globe where people pretend to live, but really it's a very expensive, unsustainable adventure. And we like to think of ourselves as glorious and powerful and sovereign. We can go to the moon. Who made the moon in the first place? And if we were to colonize there, guess what? As soon as we plant that flag in that dusty, barren soil, we better know that we are planting our flag on a prior claim. The Lord of creation, the creator of this universe, owns every square inch of all the material universe. Where can I go, we're told on the positive end in Scripture, where can I flee from your presence? Not only does he own everything, but he is everywhere. If I, my, if I make my bed on the highest mountain, the lowest depths of the sea, if I plumb the Marianas Trench, if I fly to Pluto and beyond, I cannot escape his presence, nor can I escape his claim, his ownership claim to all the earth. Why? Because he created it. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the rivers. So we serve, we live, we exist, we interchange in economics. We relate to our society under the good pleasure, at the mercy and at the good pleasure of the Lord. At any moment, if he decides he does not like the way that we are interacting, he has the right and the authority and ultimately he will, without exception, rule in our case. And the judge of the universe will determine that we need to be removed if we are not in good standing with him. We serve no matter who we are, where we are, and what institution we represent, at the good pleasure of the Lord of glory. Notice not only the real estate, but all who dwell therein are also the Lord's. The world and those who dwell therein. Every unbeliever who roams about this world, oblivious to God, and they fancy themselves a skeptic. I'm agnostic. I'm an atheist. Prove to me there is a God. And this kind of thing. With that excuse and blindness... Does that reduce their obligation to the Lord even one iota? I didn't know. It wasn't told. Ignorance is no excuse. Blindness of heart and mind is no excuse. Every single human being who has ever and will ever lived owes their life and breath and existence to the sustaining power of Jesus Christ who holds this universe and you and me together by the word of that power. And should He remove His providential hand for one instant, we lose the breath in our lungs and we are nothing. And if we are not in right relationship with Him, we are sent immediately to eternal conscious torment in hell. If we are in right standing with Him, He has already promised and given by the purchasing power of His Son's blood eternal life. Yet we are His. You are not your own, the Scriptures say. You are bought with a price. Purchased we are, that is, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus, this is a praiseworthy theme, and we can see it throughout Scripture. The dominion of the Lord, His ownership and rule over all of the earth, over all the kings of the earth, is a worthy theme to lift songs of praise to the Lord. Lift our instruments, the psalmist calls us, as a means of praise. He says, clap your hands, shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. Clapping, shouting, songs of joy, trumpets. What we see here is a plethora of instrumentation employed in the worship of the Lord. Any and every possible way to lift up the glory of the Lord, whatever we can offer as a sacrifice of praise to Him, we should on account of His dominion. We should lift up our songs in the fellowship of the assembly. We should memorize and sing the Scriptures, even in our own quiet times, hum them on our way to work, do whatever we can to extol the glories of our great King, to live in light of His sovereign rule. This, I submit to you, is, God's gover- is living in light of God's government, or if you will, theocratic patriotism. There's a Hebrew word, clap, and it's the same word actually for blowing on the trumpet. There's a sense here in the original language that the force and the thrust and the energy of the very means of worship are called to lift up a loud crescendo to the Lord of praise. 
So let the clapping of the hands, the joy of the peoples, the shouting to the Lord, the the loud corporate songs, and the trumpet all join together in a symphony that uh, brings an anthem of praise to the King of Kings. Why? Because the King of the earth is praiseworthy on account of His dominion. Secondly, and this is a tougher category for us, perhaps, the King of the earth is praiseworthy on account of His destructions. Notice again in 47, He subdued peoples under us and nations under His feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom He loves. Turn back to Psalm, Psalm 45. We've gone through this in our series recently. There's a cry to the bridegroom in the psalm, ultimately representing Christ in verse 4. And His glory and His pedigree is championed in these truths. Verse 4, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Here in these words, the author proclaims the same theme that's alluded to in Psalm 47. On account of our Lord subduing His enemies in judgment, He is worthy of praise. Have you heard this question lately? I'm sure you have if you're ear has been tuned to the skepticism and the objections to Christianity that are very popular in our humanistic, pluralistic, tolerance, you know, culture today. Have you ever heard someone say, well, isn't uh, the God of the Old Testament guilty of genocide? Didn't He tell His people to go and kill whole people groups? Well, how do you respond to that question? What's your immediate reaction? Is it one of... A wincing? I'm not sure how to answer that. Maybe embarrassment? Well, is is there something to that claim, to that charge? Is uh, a God, you know, are the commandments of God and the actions of Old Covenant Israel actually genocidal? And we get twisted up trying to think of a way to answer that in a way that would please the preconditioned hearing, you know, presets of our culture today. Let me tell you this, just a little shocking truth from Scripture. Not only is that embarrassing or, uh, you know, worried or wincing approach not advised, but in fact the opposite is declared. We are to praise the Lord, to worship songs, uh, to lift songs of worship to Him on the count of uh, of the fact that He destroys His enemies. He slaughters those who are in rebellion against Him. And that is to the praise of His glorious grace. And this is not merely an old covenant reality. For heaven's sake, do you not believe in hell? This is not merely an old covenant reality. For heaven's sake, have you read the book of Revelation? Where the glory of God's judgments is metaphorically depicted by blood that rises to the horse's bridle? Are we nervous about these admissions from Scripture? Would we rather read the more lovey-dovey parts and the gentle, meek, and mild sections and avoid altogether these realities? Let us not do so. Because we we will not be patriotic. We will not be loyal to our King if we do so. It is proper and right for us to celebrate the judgments of our God in the context of Scripture. I looked up the word genocide, by the way. And it wasn't used until 1944, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary. That's when it was coined. And it means a deliberate, systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. When you hear a phrase like that, and especially the etymology of that word beginning in 1944, you recognize why it's so sticky, because the connotations have to do with World War II, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and so on. But I would encourage you, let the Word of God renew your mind. Don't let the, the, the presets of our culture steal the gold mine that's here for you. If you turn to Genesis 15, 13 through 16 on your own time and study, you'll find prophesied to Abraham 
the destruction that would come on Canaan after they, uh, after the people were in slavery and then 430 years later they were delivered and then they go back to the land and the Lord says in that passage that he, there is a time frame and during this time frame the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete. And the implication then is when these pagan nations represented by the Amorites when they have uh, exercised all of their rebellious denial idol worship, blasphemy against the holy God that they know in their heart exists, when the Lord has reached His sovereign level of tolerance, He will justly use His commissioned officers through the people of God to destroy them and to bring judgment on them. But notice, in the course of those actions, it wasn't as if grace was not there as well. I think of the prostitute Rahab who is preserved from the destruction of Jericho. Though she herself deserved destruction, she is a picture of those who are saved by grace from this entire population of this world that will one day be destroyed, save those who are in Christ. Remember this when you think about the destructions, the praiseworthy destructions of our Lord. Remember that God, as we've already said, owns all by creative right. Secondly, remember that every one of us is a sinner. And that every sin is worthy of a capital offense. The wages of sin is death. It is only mercy and the exception, if any, get out alive and only again in Christ. Thirdly, remember, these are just some bullet points for further study later. Remember federal headship. That one person often represents uh, the, the, the whole. And this happened in Israel as well as in the pagan nations that sometimes the sin of a people through a representative head like a government renders the whole uh, corporate situation worthy of judgment. But before you dismiss that as unfair, remember the federal headship of Jesus Christ. The, sa- the sacrifice of one man our, and God, Jesus Christ our Lord, earned, uh, was applied to all who are in Him. Also remember that the seed of the Messiah was preserved in God preserving Israel. These warring nations, they would not share their territory with Israel voluntarily. No, they would destroy them. Sooner kill them than see them or grant so much as a wilderness area or corner for them to reside. So, with the Lord's destruction of the warring nations, He preserved the seed of the Messiah, which would be the salvation of a representative multitude from all the nations of the earth. Plus, as God was moving His people into the promised land, He was establishing a light. Not just the preservation of Israel herself, but a light indeed for all the nations. And these and many more reasons are all sown in to God's judgments and God's interaction in this side of history. And as we think about this, let us praise the Lord because the King of the earth is praiseworthy on account of His dominion and His destructions. Thirdly, this morning, divinity. The King of all the earth is praiseworthy on account of His divinity. Turn with me to John chapter 12, and I'll remind you of our text three weeks ago in a moment. God has gone out, Psalm 47, 8, with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises, sing to God, sing praises, Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. There is a prefiguring. There is a foreshadowing of future events in this psalm. I submit to you one of these events that we just read about, that was written hundreds of years before, took place in this moment. In John chapter 12. In John 12, you remember, we celebrate on Palm Sunday and really ought to keep be mindful of uh, every day if we have space in our mind to meditate on the glorious events of Calvary and, though, and, sur- and the uh, events that surrounded that moment. It says in John 12, 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Crying out, 
Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, another allusion to Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. I submit to you this morning, among those things written about Him was this prophecy written in the Old Covenant as a song of worship that God is King of all the earth and He has gone up with a shout and He is deserving of praise at the sound of a trumpet and then that five times repeated exhortation, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. That is exactly what the crowds did when Christ entered at that moment, the triumphal entry. They sang praises. They sang praises with a song. And at this moment, it was a picture of royalty. Christ was welcomed, not as just a suffering servant, but as a glorious king, and rightly so. Later, as events transpired, he would ascend. He would go up to his father. It says in verse 5, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets in Scripture indicate the soundtrack for triumph. When a king would come back victorious, he would be greeted by that heralding trumpet announcing to the ears of the populace the exploits of our great warrior are on parade. Then he would come through the streets. They would have war trophies. People would throw flowers and wave palm branches and so on. And behind them would be the evidence of their might and their glory as captives would be led in a train. This is the picture of triumph that our Lord Jesus Christ epitomizes ultimately. He is the champion of champions. He is the conquering king of conquering kings. And he shows us in this psalm that the Messiah is more than just a man, more than just a king on this earth. He is a king of the earth over the nations and has a holy throne. He is both man and God. He is divine. Earth can't keep him. The grave can't hold him. He would resurrect. He would ascend. He would and does now ever live, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And that language is king language. He sits there at the throne, as it were, and he dictates and decrees and governs and orders all the affairs on this mere globe. Why? Because he is king of all the earth. And the king of the earth is praiseworthy in his dominion, in his destructions, in his divinity. Fourthly, this morning, the king of the earth is five times declared praiseworthy. Not only in his dominion, his destructions, his divinity, but fourthly, this morning, let's consider in his distinctions. Perhaps not the best word but I prided myself in finding five D's. Distinctions. He chose our heritage for us. Notice in verse five, uh, 3. He, speaking of ultimately, prophetically Christ, subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Verse 4. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves, say law. There are things that are distinct about the people of God. Those who remember, remember in the second category are subdued by Him making them His people. There's something different about them. In the Old Testament, it was represented by their heritage. That wasn't just something they made up out of whole cloth. Not something that was assimilated through a melting pot and you know, cohering social norms. This heritage was sovereignly given to them by the Word of God. This heritage was indeed the Word of God, the law of God. 
It was the customs, the feasts, the traditions. It was the commandments to live in a way that was in accord with what the king had commanded and decreed that was to be the distinguishing marks of God's people. The Bible is very clear that these things weren't voted on democratically. They weren't the byproduct of a lot of years of experience. But instead, they were the product, the sovereign product of God's choosing. He chose, He decided, He decreed what heritage His people ought to have. And He wrote that down in detail and in uh, in gracious revelation in the Old Covenant. Some of you might be going through Bible in a year reading plans and you get to maybe some of your uh, lesser favorite places to read. But when you realize that in the Torah, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have that historical narrative, but you also have written out a framework of God's design for life and for human activity and relationship. And you can see, according to this scripture, that those books are not things to just kind of sweep under the rug of archaic old school, but instead they are themes worth, uh, worthy of the worship of God. In this psalm right here, the psalmist dedicates worshipful uh, praise to the Lord on the count of the sovereign heritage he had chosen for the pride of Jacob. Also later in the psalm, there's an allusion to this in verse 9. It says, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. How is it, or what distinguishes the people of the God of Abraham? Well, certainly those who at least understand and value and keep close to their heart and saturate their mind and their meditations with with the covenant of Abraham. What does it mean to be in covenant? What was God doing and showing to Abraham, my forefather in the faith? When Abraham was called out with his son Isaac, his only and late coming beloved son, the child of promise, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, but not just the blessing through the lineage, but great nations would be spawned. Actually, Abraham received a promise that he would be the father of many, many multitudes of children. Yet here is a command that seems to contradict God's promise that the father of our faith hears. Go and sacrifice your only son. And so in our mind, as we remember the story, Abraham, the patriarch, goes on a journey. They get to Mount Moriah, I believe, and the wood is strapped to the back of Isaac. The servant is told to stay behind until they get to that mountain and the place of sacrifice. Some scholars surmise that that might be the exact location where Christ himself was crucified. Whether or not the geography is a one-to-one correlation, it doesn't matter, though. The story is equally powerful. Someone else would come at a later time, fulfilling the covenant of Abraham. And that only son, that only beloved son, would carry the instrument of sacrifice on his back, and he would ascend a hill. And there, he would become the final and sufficient sacrifice for all of us. If you know that story and love it because the Holy Spirit has written it deep in the core of your soul and it's something you hang on to for dear life because you know that is the story. Both the evidence, the foreshadowing in the old and the fulfillment in the new, that's your story. That's your eternal life. Then you are among those who in this psalm are delineated as princes of the peoples who gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Everyone who recognizes that their hope is through the annexing power, the inclusion power, the welcoming, adopting power of our Lord and the Almighty God into His covenant, into His community, into His nation, into His family, those are they who share this distinctive. We are the people of the God of Abraham. You know, today there are many theories about culture and what is unique about one culture versus another and what should be really treasured and lauded on account of those differences. And you all are familiar with one of the values of our day, multiculturalism, 
which tells us that any and every culture has value and we are under social obligation to really defer to the unique values of all these other cultures. And what can be easily lost, very quickly lost, in those notions of value is that God has a distinct uh, set of behaviors, beliefs, and practices, and yes, indeed, laws for His people. There is a distinctive quality about His people. We don't live according to the flesh anymore. Those who are slaves to Christ have been delivered from slavery to sin. I submit to you every pagan culture that has ever existed, its cultural distinctives don't come from virtuous sources. They come on account of their sin. They do certain things because of their idolatry. They do certain things because of their fear. They do certain things because of their guilt and shame. We are called to carefully analyze everything that we do in light of the truth and the norm that Scripture gives. And if we find any evidence of idolatry, cultural affiliations, false loves and affections, loyalties to some other rule than the highest authority, we are to sacrifice those things, to lay them down, to present our bodies, as it were, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Because in light of our great salvation delineated in those first 11 chapters in Romans, this is just our reasonable service. Remember that you were called out. The Bible describes you, saint, as someone who's a stranger, a sojourner, an alien, and a foreigner in this world. What does that mean? That means that you are distinct. There are distinctions to the Christian life that make you odd, that make you different, the odd person out. Don't look for every possible way to find a common ground with people that you talk to. Admitting you're a sinner is enough. And then secondly, hopefully you testify to your own salvation from your sin. It is far more important that us Christians emphasize the distinction that we have with the world in Christ and Christ alone, not on our own righteous merit or anything of that nature, but Christ alone. It is far more important that we emphasize the distinctions, even culturally, of what it means to be in Christ by living as a loyal subject of His kingdom and His rule than it is to try to play the cultural games and find all, all kind of ways to advertise and market and find common ground and give a little here and give a little there and compromise until pretty soon you're no longer a city on a hill. Pretty soon your salt has lost its savor and all it's good for is grinding under the heel. You're just gravel. You're just a burnt out candle. Keep the wick trim, the light bright. Don't let the saltiness do, you lose its savor. How do we do this? We do this by seeking to glorify and worship the God who saved us by taking seriously the commands of Scripture, by loving His law, meditating on it day and night, making it food for our thought. We can do this rightly, not as a means of our salvation, but as fruit of our salvation if we are in Christ. And if we do that, I submit to you, we will be living in new covenant distinctions. The fulfillment of what was prophesied of old when the psalmist declared praiseworthy themes like he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, and the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Finally this morning, defense. The king of the earth is praiseworthy on account of his dominion, his destructions, his divinity, his distinctions, and finally, his defense. As the psalm closes, I'll back up a couple verses. Verse 8, for it's, uh, chapter 47 again in the Psalter. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Just uh, two psalms prior, or one psalm prior, there's language that expounds this idea of shield, refuge, defense, protection. It says in 46.1, you'll remember this from our sermon last month, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, 
Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Listen to this shield. This is terms and beautiful description of the safety that God provides us. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Listen to the contrasting language. Yes, there are dangers, there are toils and trials, there are enemies on all sides, yet we have a refuge in our Lord. It says in verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is what? He is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end. Of the earth, he burns the chariots. When he breaks the bow, he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Then that beautiful psalm closes with this admonition. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted where? Among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The king of the earth is our safe refuge, our fortress, and our defense. I mentioned in the Psalm 46 message that Psalm 46 speaks to two areas of human tendency toward idolatry. One is to ascribe sovereignty to the human will, and the second is to ascribe sovereignty to the forces of nature. And the psalm declares that God is our refuge and our strength, and He is sovereign in spite of those two forces. The the earth gives way. There are earthquakes and natural disasters, as it were. The mountains will be moved from time to time in the course of God's sovereignly ordained history and moved into the heart of the sea. But just as the flood of Noah had purpose in those kind of events, so does every disaster that happens on the face of the earth. We see those type of things, and we tend to fear. What if I was in the towers at 9-11? Well, I'm lucky I wasn't there. Oh, you know... I could have been at that car accident that happened just moments. I round the bend and there it is, carnage, wreckage, glass thrown across the highway. Oh, you know, I'm sure thankful I wasn't driving five miles an hour faster. And we tend to think of these things as narrow misses and just luck and situations that have impersonal way of arranging circumstances. Sometimes the molecules bump into each other. Sometimes they pass by unscathed. I'm telling you, there's not a single molecule that is disobedient to the God of heaven. Not a single atom out of its proper location according to His sovereign decree. And this is why we can read these psalms and be rest assured that God is our refuge and strength. He can give you a calm right in the middle of a storm. He can give you a fortress right in the middle of a war. Why? Because He owns the earth, as we mentioned before. He is sovereign over the will of man. The will of man is perhaps most formidable when we see it codified and bound together in the national interest of a warring nation-state. We mentioned in the ancient world that rumble of chariot wheels that would send a shudder down the spine of those who were not well equipped to stave off this, you know, the Egyptians or whatever who are chasing them. But think of the battle campaigns that were most successful in the Old Testament. They woke up in the city, looked over the walls, and the armies had fled. They prayed to the Lord and looked in the valley, and the enemies were fighting themselves and killing each other. One day, Elijah's servant saw a vision. The eyes, or his eyes were open to the reality. His eyes were open to reality. And in the heavenly realm, there were thousands, millions, perhaps multitudes of angels. Chariots, yes. God's warring host. And I'm telling you, if you are in Him, if you had declared your allegiance, your loyalty to the King of heaven, all of those chariots, and as Christ said, even a legion at His command could deliver Him in an instant from the Roman guard. Yet God had a purpose in Christ's suffering. God has a purpose in yours. God can and He will deliver His people when it is in His good pleasure to preserve them. He is their shield. He is their refuge. He is their strength. He has purpose in the trial and He has absolute power of preservation for us because 
The shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Where can I run when I am threatened by the eventuality of sin, uh, death, sickness, you know, disease, sorrows of any kind, depressing circumstances, warring nations, political upheaval, anything and everything that you might imagine on this depraved globe? Where can I run? There is no safe place outside of Christ. All shields of the earth belong to Him. That is, every legitimate implement to guard you from the darts of the enemy or fortress to shield you from the onslaught of that warring horde. Every single place that offers legitimate protection is in the hand of the Lord. And not just the paupers find, their, uh, find, find it so, but also the princes. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Why? Because the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Even those who are blessed with the most power, with the most influence, who, who provide for themselves through human means what they think is a significant uh, armor and camouflage from the threats of this world, even those are fools if they do not realize that all the shields of the earth belong to the Lord. When we think of these things, we can easily think of our own salvation. Salvation is not just a moment in time. That's the essence of our salvation when we are regenerate, born again, delivered from our sin. But salvation is a state of being, if you will, where God promises and, uh, and none of His promises are ever broken and ever fail to preserve us. He carries us through this life. He is faithful to do so till we have done everything that His will has called us to accomplish. And then He brings us even through death through the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ our Lord, the first fruits of all who are in Him. He brings us all into glory. And that is the ultimate defense, the truth of being hid in Christ. In Him is our hiding place, in Jesus Christ alone. Finally, this morning, as we consider this defensive portion and the warring portion of Psalm 47, let us remember that we saints are warriors. We are called to take Psalm 47 and apply it to our own lives today. Our fighting is a little different than the armies under the command of the magistrate um, David, the great musician, leader of Israel, type of Christ, and his warring and conquering and triumph. Our implements of war are a little different, but principles are the same. We have exchanged the sword of David for the sword of the Spirit in the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They are not carnal, but they are effective. They are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. They will defend and they will take ground. And thus, with our strategy, according to verses like this in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Ephesians 6, the armaments of the Spirit, helmet of salvation a breastplate of righteousness, and so on. With these, brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, loyal subjects of the King of Heaven, we work even more effectively to advance and proclaim, to advance and proclaim the international, yes, the international authority of the ultimate sovereign, Jesus Christ, our King of Kings. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that the fruit and effect of this message would be a tenacious zeal to take ground for the kingdom of God. A zeal and a confidence that the victory is ours when the battle is yours. That I, I pray that it would produce fruit, this message, these meditations this morning. I pray it would produce fruit of worship and glory to your holy name. Because you have conquered the most formidable of all foes. Never mind an army, we may defeat them, but who can stave off his own death? Through Jesus Christ, he can have eternal life. Jesus, you defeated death on Calvary. You defeated death in your resurrection. You defeated our enemy, the devil, and sin itself. And with this pedigree of your triumphal conquering, what can we possibly fear? Nothing. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to share boldly our faith, even in a world that hates to hear it, trusting that you might work the same sovereign miracle you did in our own hearts 
to call another sinner from the miry clay of sin and set his feet upon his rock, his Lord, and his Savior, and the King of earth and heaven, Jesus Christ. That we might add one more to this small congregation here that will gather Gather next week again as the people of the God of Abraham singing you praises, practicing for eternity on account of your great name. And in that holy name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.